Well, for the past several years, I have had the privilege of being part of the faculty at Veritas Christian Academy in Wayland, a small Christian school, and I serve there as the chaplain and as a Bible teacher. And more specifically, I teach Bible for 5th and 6th grade students, which if you are an educator or a parent of middle schoolers, you know that is not the easiest age when it comes to classroom management, uh, especially if you're a novice teacher like I am. And so chaos would not be an inappropriate description of what our classroom sometimes devolves into. Uh, The side conversations, the giggling, talking out of turn, all myriad of distractions I am not good at reining that in. Uh, Attention focused everywhere but what I'm trying to teach in the 40 minutes that I get. And so sometimes, in order to break through that chaos and regain the class's attention, a teacher has to do something surprising, something provocative or unexpected. Uh, My default is to raise my voice. Maybe not the best tactic, but that's, that's my default. Some teachers use a little bell, you know, you ring the bell. Uh, sometimes it's more effective just to be silent and to stop teaching until they notice. Uh, or to be specific and call out a student. Whatever the tactic, eventually the students will realize in the midst of the chaos, something's changed, something's different. They'll stop what they're doing and they'll look up to the front. Well, in the same way, Jesus, in order to get our attention amidst the chaos of this fallen world, sometimes does something provocative in order to pry our eyes off of that chaos and get us to look up, to see Him. And He does this not just to be edgy, and provocative, not provocative for provocative sake. He, he doesn't do it out of offense. He does it for the same reason he does everything, out of love, out of his love. And that's been our goal this fall, is to meditate on the heart of Jesus as it's revealed in his interaction with those whom he encounters, to see how he loved people that we might understand better his love for us and so receive that love and then share that love. And that brings us this morning to the Gospel of Mark chapter 5 where we encounter the provocative love of Jesus. As we uh, heard a moment ago in the reading, this passage picks up the story of two people who are very different Uh, completely unrelated, and yet whose lives intersect in surprising ways. The first person that we meet in the story is one of the rulers of a local synagogue, a man named Jairus. And he comes to Jesus in desperation, uh, in humility, and in faith. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. Just boldly approaches Jesus, falls down, and and calls out for help. 
the desperation in that situation is pretty obvious. Uh, there is perhaps no greater fear for a parent than losing their child. Uh, we know from verse 42 that, that this girl is 12 years old, so she would be a sixth grader uh, today. Uh, and we know from the same account in Luke's gospel that she is the only child of Jairus. And so losing a child is a terrifying prospect, but losing your only child, it's, it's completely unimaginable. There's no greater fear for a parent because there's no deeper pain that a parent might experience. Uh, Carissa and I know this pain in a slightly blunted way, having lost three children to miscarriage. Um, some of you know this in a full-on way. I mean, think of the pain that Emily Kaddish is living right now, the young woman who lost her only son, five years old, two weeks ago. We continue to pray for her in her grief. I mean, there's just no words to even imagine what that's like. And some of you don't have to imagine, though. Some of you have experienced that. You've buried children. You know exactly the desperation that Jairus is experiencing here and what it would drive you to track down the man who's said to be Israel's Messiah, who's, who has this growing reputation as someone who can heal. Maybe he can do what no one else is able to do. Maybe he can prevent my child's death. There's desperation that drives Jairus in this story. But there's not just desperation. There's also humility and faith. Humility and faith. He kneels before Jesus. He humbles himself before him. And then he speaks with faith in Jesus' ability to heal. He says, come, lay your hands on her so that she may be well, made well and live. Not maybe then she could be. But he trusts that if Jesus just comes and lays his hands She's going to be made well. There's faith. And Jesus goes with him. Jesus goes with him, and the story moves forward. But it's as they're making their way to Jairus' house that we encounter the second person in our story, a woman whose desperation, while taking a, a quite a different shape than Jairus's, is no less real and no less severe. Verse 25. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. Just as some of you know the heartache of losing a child, some of you know uh, the gut punch of chronic illness, the unrelenting pain, the empty promise of this new treatment, the dashed hopes of, of making improvement, the overwhelming medical bills, the inability to do what ought to be normal things in life, like feeding yourself or going to the bathroom, the slow erosion of your dignity. That's this woman's world. That's where she lives. She's lived with a chronic discharge of blood that has robbed her of her life, both in terms of, of physical pain, but also her livelihood. She has literally spent everything she had chasing a cure, and it isn't even any better. She's way worse than when she started. She's nothing left. And, and more than that, uh, 
Her condition has left her in a continual state of ritual impurity. Under ancient Israel's law, there were several things that could make you ritually unclean, even if just temporarily, and uh, menstruation was one of them, which meant that, that during a woman's cycle, she couldn't gather with the people in, at the tabernacle for worship, uh, lest God's tabernacle become unclean. And so you stretch that, that momentary inconvenience into 12 long years, 12 years of pain, 12 years of destitution, of isolation, of not being able to gather with the people of God in worship, that's a pretty desperate situation. And yet, while her, her desperation takes a very different shape than Jairus's, it's interesting to notice how these stories intersect as they encounter Jesus at the same time. There's this interesting chronological parallel, right? So, so Jairus's daughter is 12 years old, and she's been suffering with her ailment for 12 years. This is kind of an interesting connection about the stories. But, but then there's the similarity, uh, not just in their desperation, but in their humility and their faith. Just as Jairus knelt before Jesus, so this woman will kneel before Jesus. Verse 33, Jairus's humility was bold. He, he came right up to Jesus and asked for help. She comes in humility as well, but in a more timid shape. She kind of sneaks up behind him to touch him. But just as Jairus believed that Jesus could heal his daughter, so the woman says to herself, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. She comes with faith. She comes with faith. And she was right. Verse 29. Immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed from her disease. But perhaps what unites uh, these two people and their stories more than anything else here is the provocative way that Jesus interacts with them in their request. There's something surprising and unexpected that he does in how he handles their request for healing. For the woman... Rather than allowing her to sneak off after having been made well but never actually facing Jesus, he calls her out. Verse 30, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? He calls the woman out. But in stopping and doing so and having a conversation with this woman, that creates a delay in getting to Jairus' house, and that delay results in the death of Jairus' daughter. They don't make it in time. Verse 35, while he's still speaking with the woman, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So, so Jesus handles their requests in strange ways, in ways that actually generate fear for both the man and the woman. The woman fears that she's in trouble. The man fears that there is no longer any hope for his daughter. So why does Jesus do that? Why does he create this awkward situation why does he provoke fear 
in those looking for healing. Again, calling the woman out, allowing himself to be delayed such that the little girl dies. If you think about it, neither, none of that was necessary. None of that was necessary. The reality is Jesus didn't even need to go to Jairus' house to heal his daughter. He didn't need to touch her. He didn't need to be there. He could have simply just said the word and she could have been made well. That's what he does with the centurion servant in Matthew 8. He didn't have to go there. Nor did he need to ask who touched him. I mean, that's such a strange moment when Jesus says, who, who touched me? I mean, it puzzles us because he's Jesus. <laughs> I mean, of course he knows who touched him. With respect to his divinity, Jesus is omniscient. I mean, we saw that three chapters ago in Mark chapter 2 when he knew what the paralyzed man needed before anybody else did. And when he perceived the criticism of the Pharisees without them even uttering a word, he didn't need to ask. So it puzzles us, and it puzzles his disciples too. Because everybody was touching him. Verse 31, his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? So why does Jesus do it? Why does he call the woman out? Why does he allow himself to be delayed? It's not for his own benefit. And if it's not for his benefit, that means it must be for their benefit and for ours in revealing his divine love. The truth of the gospel is that Jesus came not merely to rescue us from hardship, though he cares deeply about the hardship that we encounter. Jesus came not merely to rescue us from something, but to someone, to himself. Our temptation when, when we are, are in the midst of hardship, and especially the, the grueling and gut-wrenching kinds of things that these two people faced, our, our temptation is just to be, become completely overwhelmed with it, overwhelmed by our trial such that that is literally all we can see or think about, is the trial right in front of us. We are suffocating in it. We are drowning in pain. We're drowning in sorrow. We are drowning in fear as our world falls apart around us. It's like, it's like being caught in a riptide at the beach, and we're just struggling for oxygen, fighting to keep our head above the surface, desperate for relief. We want to be rescued, and frankly, we don't care who rescues us. That's where we live when we're overcome with trial. But Jesus came not just to rescue us from something, but to himself, to draw us to himself. And because we don't always see that, that it's not just about getting out of a jam, but it's about getting Jesus, because we don't always see that, in his love, he sometimes does something provocative to get us to look up, to break through the chaos. He's like the lifeguard who, who um, because the drowning victim is thrashing and panicking so much, has to take them down under the water with them for a moment and bring them back up to calm them down and be able to rescue them. It's that moment. Or like the teacher who does something 
provocative, something surprising to regain the class's attention. He delays the lesson or he calls out the student so that we'll all stop and look up. Because he's the main point of salvation. To look to Jesus, he's the main point of salvation. Getting him, not just getting out of a bind. Relationship with him. He didn't spill his blood just so that our life could be easier and we wouldn't face as many hardships. He spilled his blood to deal with our sin and reconcile us to God that we might know him and enjoy him eternally. A personal relationship with Christ. And he rose from the dead to make that new life possible, to make all things new. And and so he doesn't just rescue people in our story from a hard situation. He invites them into relationship with him. And that relationship is marked by faith, by faith. If you notice again how both of them respond to Jesus's uh, surprising tactics with fear. Verse 32, Jesus looked around to see who touched him, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and told him the whole truth. Verse 35, while he's still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter's dead, why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler, do not fear only believe. They're startled by Jesus' actions. They're, they're afraid. She's afraid she's in trouble. He's afraid his daughter's lost. But in, in the face of that fear, where they're able to finally look up and see Jesus. And that's where he calls them to faith. Look, Look again at those those same verses. He commends the woman. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. He redirects the man. He says, do not fear. Only believe. Only have faith. He invites them to step out of their fear and replace it with faith. The woman must come forward. The man must believe the resurrection. They must have faith specifically in Jesus. And it has to be in Jesus. He's not calling them to some sort of generic, vague spirituality as though faith by itself has some sort of power. Faith is only as good as the object in which you put it. And so he's calling them to faith in him because it's the person of Christ who wields the power of Christ. It's not just the idea of Christ. Jesus is not just a doctrine. He is a person. And he's drawing these people to himself. He doesn't just heal them. He draws them into relationship with himself. And notice what that relationship looks like as he's drawing them in. Not just out of the hardship, but toward himself. Notice what that relationship looks like with the woman who is so afraid. She's afraid that she's done something wrong by reaching out in her desperation. Jesus doesn't call her out because he's upset with her. Like, how dare you sneak up and touch me and steal my power? That's not it. 
He doesn't call her out because he's upset. He calls her out because she has no need to be afraid or to be ashamed. He calls her out so that she can know his love and not just get healed, but get him. Look how tenderly he speaks to her. Verse 34. He says, daughter. He calls her daughter. Think about that. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So he, he calls her daughter. There's this relational gentleness. There's, then he commends her faith. And then he sends her forth in peace. Think about that. Peace, wholeness. She hasn't tasted peace in over a decade. And at this moment, in meeting Jesus and experiencing his love, she gets to go forward in peace. He doesn't just heal her. He brings her into relationship with himself. And then look at his relationship with the man, with Jairus. I mean, I... I don't know what he was thinking when he's in that crowd and and time is limited and we've got to get to my daughter because she's almost gone and all of a sudden they're stopped. And, and, And I don't know what he thought. I don't know if he was freaking out. I would have been freaking out. I would have been angry, upset, agitated. Time is limited. And then to get the news, the notice, she's it's too late. Look at how Jesus loves him. He speaks words of truth and comfort. Do not fear. Only believe. And then he makes space for the Father amid the chaos. Notice he doesn't take his entire entourage of disciples with him. He picks just a few, the closest few, not the whole group. And when they get to the house, he clears everybody out. There's all of this commotion, all of the weeping and the wailing. He's, he loves the Father by giving him space, not just to grieve, but to be able to take on board what's about to happen. Only those with faith are allowed to stay in the room. Everyone else gets out. They mock Jesus for saying that she's not dead, she's only asleep. Because she was dead. She was really dead. But Jesus was about to wake her from that death. And so he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and he went in where the child was. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. The gentleness of Jesus, even in that moment, the little girl, the compassion. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. For she was 12 years of age, and and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, because his time had not yet come for that, for the cross. And then watch what what he does, the very last line there. And told them to give her something to eat. It's just this funny little line at the end of the phrase. But think about that. Think about how even that little note reveals the love of Jesus. 
He's loving the mother and the father by raising their daughter from the dead, and then he's loving the daughter by reminding mom and dad in their amazement, she's going to need to eat something. (laughs) She's going to be pretty weak. She just came back from the dead. Jesus, in his love, addresses their pain. He delivers them from their trial, but not without drawing them to himself in relationship, in faith. He came not merely to rescue us from something, but to someone, to himself. Some of you know uh, Pastor Paul Reed. Uh, He's recently retired as the senior pastor at one of our sister churches in uh, Waltham, Hope International. And if your kids uh, go to Veritas or if they went to WCA, they would know Mrs. Reed, their science teacher, that's his wife. Well, Paul retired early uh, not because he wanted to, uh, because he had to. You might say that he was brought there by the provocative love of Christ. And he's collected his story um, in this little short book, and I want to read to you from the introduction. It started with an itch, June 2014. I had itching sensations uh, for any seeming reason, Uh, no rash, no exposure to anything unusual. The itching strangely morphed over several weeks into a slight numbness in my fingers and toes and then electrical sensations in the lower arms and legs. In these next months, there was a continual struggle with these symptoms, struggles to sleep, increasingly unusual sensations, headaches, loss of energy. Then came the pain. My question that summer changed from, is something wrong to, what's wrong? I started the long road to find a diagnosis, which would last two and a half years. I traveled the offices of oncologists, neurologists, infectious disease specialists, and hematologists. Tests, lots of tests. After nearly two years of searching, I still had no answers. All I knew was what it wasn't. At the end of 2015, through a friend and some unusual circumstances and a seemingly unplanned connection, I was put in touch with the undiagnosed disease program at the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. After some hesitation, I applied for the program and, it was, and was accepted, traveling there in February 2016. I spent five days undergoing tests. Side comments from prior doctors had already intimated a rare and feared disease. It had been written as a possible thing to rule out by a radiologist in my medical chart as far back as July of 2014, and occasionally uttered several other times that was never taken seriously. The doctors at the NIH were hunting on this trail. I went home in February 2016, still not knowing what was going on with my body. I'd moved from a few odd symptoms to multiple intensifying issues and still did not know why. They explained that they would do a full genetic sequencing in a search which would take at least six months or more. By the fall of 2016, I thought they'd forgotten me. I thought I was still one of those strange patients no one could figure out medically. I was wrong. On September 30th, 2016, Dr. M from the NIH arranged to talk with me by phone. The context and undercurrent suggested that something was discovered, and that's when he told me it was FARS, 
which is an extremely rare genetic degenerative disease. But then Paul says this. This has been one of the best things that's ever happened to me. No, I'm not crazy. I believe God knows what he's doing. I've struggled through anxiety, fatigue, pain, sleeplessness. It's been hard. This road has been and continues to be the most challenging road I have walked on. The only reason for this being a good road is because the only reason for this being a good road is Jesus Christ. All of the credit for the good part goes to him. I have found with him hard roads become good roads. I have learned so much, been driven deeper, found comfort, and been closer to him because of this. I would not trade this away if given the chance. Now, that's remarkable. That's remarkable. That's remarkable faith, right? And, and if you're curious to read his story, just email me and I will get you a copy of his, of his book. So, how is it that someone in losing his health is able to get more of Jesus? I mean, what does it look like to really receive the provocative love of Christ? What does that mean for us? And what does that mean as we come alongside others who either know Jesus or don't know Jesus? We always want to ask that, those two questions in this series as we're looking at how Jesus loved them. How does that, therefore, mean that he loves us? And how do we share that love? And so just a few things to reflect on or think about as we close First, in terms of, of receiving Jesus' love, when we find ourselves trapped in that hardship, in that trial, uh, terrified of loss, we need to pray for deliverance. We need to pray for deliverance. Both of these people in our story went to Jesus looking for help. But we need to remember that his goal is not merely to fix us, but to draw us to himself to draw us into a relationship marked by faith. Again, when all we can see is what's falling apart around us, the foreclosure notice, the, the, the terminal diagnosis, that dreaded phone call in the middle of the night, when, when what we can't see is what in the world God's doing through this. We can't see that. Or how this could possibly turn out for good. Faith Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We may not be able to see what God's doing in that moment, but that doesn't mean he's not at work. It's trusting the unseen God who works in the unseen realm, who has power and authority over everything seen or unseen. Trusting Jesus does not mean having all of the answers. It doesn't mean uh, the absence of doubt or fear. 
What it means is clinging to Jesus in the midst of that. In the midst of that. Not presuming on him or demanding that he address our situation in exactly the way we prescribe. We recognize faith, faith is both humility and hope. So it's the humility to recognize God is God and I am not, and he has authority to accomplish this, whatever this is, according to his good plan. It's humility. It's humility to recognize suffering is not an accident, as though God slipped off of his throne for a moment and, and then all of a sudden everything fell apart, but that it's one of the graces that he uses to draw us to himself. So it's humility but it's also hope, hope that God is in control and that he wants to show his love and power and mercy to his children, hope that the same God who made this body knows how to restore it. He knows how to put it back together, to remove the cancer, to take away the disease, and believing that he can do that and pleading with him to do it. But, and this is crucial, faith doesn't just look to Jesus for this life only. Faith realizes that even when God does answer those prayers, and he's answered some of those prayers among us, there are people who used to be on the list for cancer, they're not on that list anymore. God answers those kinds of prayers. But even when he does answer those prayers, his ultimate answer is coming in the end when Christ returns to make all things new. And that's our ultimate hope. And that gives us perspective for when his answer is sometimes no in the present. Jesus is not just trying to fix our lives. He is drawing us to himself. And so do we hear that call in the midst of our chaos? Do we hear him such that we look up? And as we come alongside others in their crises, others who, who don't know Jesus and others who do, are we helping them likewise to look above their hardship and see Jesus? When someone that we love faces a trial, our immediate impulse is to try and rescue them. We want to fix the situation, whatever it is. And if we can't fix it, then what we do is pray that it'll get fixed. And that's, that's kind of where our focus goes, on the circumstance, the situation, which is not entirely bad. We ought to pray for everything, including those kinds of hard circumstances. We ought to help with those kinds of things. But if Jesus came not just to fix us, but to draw us to himself, are we not missing something in our love for others if our actions and our prayers are only about fixing, rescuing, or delivering. We need to love people in crisis in tangible ways. But we also need to point them to Jesus. Because he might be trying to do something other than just get them out of a bind. In fact, I will just, I will just say, he is doing something more than just trying to get them out of a bind. He is. He is always in his love through our circumstances drawing us closer to himself. And so does our care reflect that? Maybe fixing the situation immediately isn't always what's best, but helping them see Jesus in the situation. 
do our prayers reflect that? Do, our prayer, do we pray only for deliverance, but do, or do we also pray for transformation, for renewal spiritually, that God would accomplish his redemptive work in their life even as he delivers them from their trial? And so grieve with them, help them, but help them look up and see Jesus. Don't let our love soften the provocation of Jesus' love, which is meant to draw us out of ourselves and toward him, to the main point of salvation, him. Jesus came not just to save us from hard things, but to save us for himself. Let's pray. Lord, would we be patient to see and hear your love? Lord, in our trials, in our heartache, God, we thank you that you care about that. You care about it so much that you, you sent your son to take on flesh and to walk in our shoes and to bear our burdens and carry our griefs to taste the sorrow and sadness and suffering of this world in our place in order to rescue us from it, to taste the results of our sin, our rebellion against you, to rescue us from that. So you care deeply about our trials, Lord, trials that are our fault and trials that are not. You care. We praise you for that. But Lord, thank you that your care isn't just about making our life better, but giving us Jesus. And Lord, may that be our hope. May that be our peace. May that be our solace. For those among us right now who are barely keeping their nose above water, would you give them more Jesus? For those of us who are dull through going through the motions of life, enjoying the ease of life, would you give them more Jesus? Lord, we all need more of you. And that's our prayer. And our prayer is that in having more of you, that that would be enough, that that would carry us through even as we look to the day when you will make all things new. So Lord, give us that faith, that personal faith that comes from our hearts and that faith that is invested in Jesus, the person, not just the idea. Thank you that you are our living Savior. And we ask it in your holy name. Amen.